Well, hello, and welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. And in this episode, we will be taking on Golf, uh, which was uh, published in November and December of 1949 in Astounding. Um, So we are back to it. We're back to Astounding. For better or for worse? Mostly worse. Um, I had really hoped Heinlein was past this stuff. I was... uh, because it, it, these themes, these, this astounding, the Heinlein of astounding, of this obsession with like the breaking forth of the limits of human potential, this, I, this Superman idea, let's just use the language that's used in golf, the idea of this Superman is trickled throughout his um, astounding work. Now, to what degree is that Campbell pushing Heinlein to that narrative? To what degree is it Heinlein himself? It doesn't matter because it's pretty clear after the war he had gone on to much more mature ideas and concepts in his science fiction writing in like the green hills of of earth series of stories and in the juveniles i think you know the juveniles are a bit mixed but they're much more thematically interesting and lofty than this 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 old canard of like the superman the the savior the the the, the human plus stuff we get from from Heinlein's stories like Beyond This Horizon, Methuselah's Children, and 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 those kinds those those stories um, from that were like published in you know in the forties before the war. Not just astounding, but mostly there. But we what was that other uh, weird story about the people who learned to like to enhance their mind and want to create a, like a, a super Boy Scout, Superman Boy Scout camp somewhere. Oh, I forget the name of that story, but it's not worth remembering. Um, anyways, I was kind of sad to see this kind of come back. Now, maybe it's, he, it comes back because he's writing for Astounding and he's just trying to again cater to Campbell. This could be pretty strong evidence that that's what he's doing, essentially. He's just... Um, Kind of like, oh, this is what this is what Campbell's gonna gonna want. This is what Astounding wants, anyways. This, these kinds of stories. Um, now, in the introduction to Nothing Ever Happens on the Moon, um, Heinlein actually talks about this topic. Which there, Nothing Ever Happens on the Moon is a good story. It's it's not golf. It's not this 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 stuff again. Um, but he does say this. I never left the genre pulps entirely, as it turned out to be easy to write book-length jobs and break it into three or four cliffhangers and sell it as a pulp serial or immediately before book publication. Um, I did this with a dozen novels in the 40s and 50s. Now, that's not entirely... What he really means is he wrote those in the 40s and they got published in the 50s, right? The juveniles weren't published serially. Now, maybe like some have this this history I'll, I'll keep keep my eyes open for it um but he in the juveniles i think they were published as paperbacks the he's thinking of here like uh sixth column or beyond this horizon or methuselah's children which were published in the 50s but were based on 1940s 
serials from Astounding and, and, and journals like that. So it's the Anson McDonald stuff and the, and the Heinlein stuff from, from Astounding. Um, but there's what he, going on in his introduction. He says, but I recall only one story, Golf, specifically written for Pulp. Golf being for Astounding's unique prophesized issue. End quote. So the, the fact that this is a special issue that's the, a, a unique prophesized issue maybe gave, gave Heinlein the chance to kind of be his old self again and, and, ex, you know, and write this stuff. But it, it's not a good look. We, 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 we thought you have matured so much, Heinlein. Uh, we thought you, through the writing of juveniles, you matured yourself. You have kind of uplifted yourself to, to more lofty ideas of, of, of what humanity can be. But instead, we get this, this eugenic stuff. We're back at it. Um, anyways, let's talk about it. Golf is a fairly long story. Obviously, it was published over two issues. So it, it's essentially a novella or a short novel. Um, the first half, and I don't know, quite know where the break was between the two issues because I have uh, the later reprint from, this is Expanded Worlds. Um, where we have the first part, of, like I think it's broken up. Basically, you have the spy versus spy stuff in the first part of the story, and then you have the Superman stuff in the second half. So I, th I think that's where it breaks up, probably. I'm not quite sure what the cliffhanger is. It's probably when our, our hero escapes or, or, or when the, 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 the doomsday weapon is destroyed, and we think that plot line is, is wrapped up, and then he goes, you know, to try, you know, it goes to the next part of the story. It kind of feels like Beyond This Horizon in that there's like two stories here that just sort of get, do get fused together. They could be read, I think, separately and be enjoyed. I think the first half is a decent spot, some decent spy fiction with some fun ideas in it. And the second is just eugenics. Now, to be fair, we do get a return to the original plot of the story at the end in the last few pages of Golf, and that's not bad, um, but... There's a middle part that's tough to get through, and it's partially because we've, we've been here before, and we've had to read through this nonsense before, and it's like even worse here. I think it's worse here than in like Beyond the Horizon <laughs> or some of the other um, Superman stories of, of Heinlein's. He was never nearly as bad as Campbell was, or, or I, 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 remember, like, I remember enjoying those stories, but I like, kind of put them in that phase of, of him writing for Astounding and just him coming back to it. And it's like, why? Why did you have to do this? Um, and you give us such a... I mean, it's not great. It's not amazing. Golf is not an amazing story. Maybe you want to read it. I don't know. It is, it is significant in like, text, so it's a lot, it's a lot of words. So if you're like a Heinlein completionist, I guess you have to read it. If you're doing a read-through podcast like I am, you have to read this. But I'm going to kind of recommend this one be skipped, I suppose. But um, anyways, our our main character here is Joseph Gilead. Now, he goes by different names, and he's most commonly just referred to as Joe or, or, or Gilead, and, and that's apparently not his real name. Um, and we start out with him in the middle of his spy mission where he, he came from the moon to the earth and he basically has to deliver this microfilm the, the, this that has the special plans for some kind of doomsday weapon although he doesn't understand the full nature of it at the start of the story and he just has to deliver it that's his, his mission and it's complicated by the fact that um, you know 
people are trying to stop them. And it's, it seems to be an organized, insta- you know, some kind of organization is trying to stop them to steal the plans for themselves. So pretty standard spy stuff here in the story. Um, he is very careful and very protective, and he does his job adequately. I think no one could accuse him of not doing his job properly. But he is outsmarted at several points or at least, uh, you know, put in positions where he really can't avoid falling into the trap of the people that are chasing him. It, it's not a, like I said, it's not a bad spy story in the first half of the half of it. Um, for instance, so he finds that he catches a pickpocket trying to catch his wallet and then he stops him and gets the wallet back, but is actually like a swap wallet. And so he puts, he, he puts the wallet into his like secret pocket in his clothes. But then he realizes later on, it was actually a complete identical of his wallet with the same cards and everything. Um, replaced so that, that that's kind of a good idea um he's really anxious throughout this uh, eventually he he there's a fight on the streets he he fights off some guys and makes it finally to the vacuum tube uh mail system and sends the two dummy microfilm containers to one place and sends the real one to another place which is a p.o box in chicago and and his mission's sort of done, but he still thinks he might not make it. And the reason he sent it off as quickly and rushed as he did is he, he thought he'd be killed. He'll be killed pretty soon by the forces opposing him, which aren't clearly defined. Um, and he go- ends up going to the hotel. And while at the hotel, he gets captured. Um, and that's kind of the end of the first action-packed section of the story. It's, it's pretty good stuff. I actually enjoyed reading this and thought I was in for a little bit of a treat. And I don't want to say the second half ruins my experience of the first half, but it, it sort of does. Um, uh, it, he's, he's just an interesting guy, though. Like, I was getting senses of, like, double star with, like, this guy having multiple identities and able to switch between them. So to be a spy, you have to be a good actor. Uh, he's constantly being, like, like, the hotel's constantly trying to, like, get him like seduce him and he's like resisting that so he's um being quite stoic uh very being very professional throughout this it's not james bond kind of stuff um you know and he gets his job done he he thinks he's going to die but he knows his mission is the most important thing and he tries to fulfill it and he does his best so there's very little to complain about his performance here but of course in a sense he sort of does fail at his mission uh and he gets captured We'll, we'll see that the, the, the vacuum package doesn't get to its right location. Um, so while he's in, so he's eventually captured um, and he wakes up in a prison cell with this other guy who, whose name is, is Baldwin. He goes by the name Kettlebelly Baldwin because he's, he's fat. He's got a big belly. And he, he meets this guy and they start to talk and pretty soon he teaches him a game. He teaches him a, a card game, which is really a, a kind of a, a code or a cipher. I don't know. I don't know which I guess it, this is a cipher. Um, and basically it's where you use the red cards to each card representing a letter. Black cards representing not letters. And then you play out cards in a certain pattern. And you pretend you're playing a game, but actually you're, you're faring messages back and forth. And, and he picks up on it really quickly. And this, as we learn later, impresses uh, Baldwin, who's kind of just feeling out 
this guy, Gilead, this, this spy, he's really not... I mean, it's all kind of a facade here at this point, but um, but it kind of testing him out. But I mean, the, he's really being captured by by the people who want this doomsday device thing. But but Baldwin, that's not a really a threat from Baldwin's point of view. He's just putting himself in the situation to test out um, Gilead, it seems. But he picks up on it really fast, and he's able they're able to communicate through these cards. And it's kind of a fun little part of the story where we get to see how the cards are laid out, where X's represent the black cards. And the red cards represent letters, but of course there's only one for each, so you sometimes have to use creative spelling uh, to, to, to say the message. Because if you use up your O, you can't use up the O you know, later on because each, each card only shows up once in the deck. Now, eventually they drag him away to be tortured um, and for, his, for his information, the, the captors. But before that, he, he gives him a message, and it's tell FBS, which is... Uh, Federal Bureau of Security, which uh, Gilead works for, P-O-B-O, meaning P-O box, D-E-B-T, Chicago. Now, from this, Baldwin gets, knows where the secret is, knows where he addressed that, that package to. Now, we got the Chicago, we got the P-O box, we got FBS. D-E-B-T, debt. I don't know how that translates into the number. I looked at it for a while. It doesn't make much sense to me. Somehow Baldwin gets the exact number of the, the P.O. box. Maybe I'm missing something. But, um, but anyways, that's the message that he delivers. And then he goes off to be, to be tortured. And he run, meets this Mrs. Keithley, who was like actually a major politician um, and a major public figure. But she's somehow behind this scheme to try to get the hands of these, of these plans. And they... they basically murder a waitress in front of a waitress he met before as kind of a threat. Uh, they, try, they threaten to use hypnosis, but he doesn't break. And then he goes back to in the prison and they go back to playing the game with Baldwin and Baldwin's like, you got to escape now. Um, they're going to kill you. And then they do manage the escape. They do the escape with a really, uh, I mean, it's kind of a silly way, the fake fight in the, among the prisoners. And then the guards come in and open the door and then they can beat up the guards and get out. It, it's, it's super, super cliche. Uh, at least now it is. I don't know if it was in, in Heinlein's time. I guess it was. Um, and he gets out and he's able to like go back to his bosses. And, and the bosses are like at, at FBS are like, you totally failed, right? Like this was, this was a complete disaster of a mission. And he says, well, go to P.O. Box 1060 in Chicago and, and you'll find it. And they don't. It's not there. It's not there. Um, so he figures out it must have been Baldwin because Baldwin's the only one who had that information. Um, the, the, the captors didn't have that information. I guess unless they had cameras. But it turns out it is Baldwin who went to Chicago P Post Office and stole the, the thing. We also learn more about what the plans are, and essentially it is a doomsday weapon. It's the absolute weapon based on something called the Nova effect. It's just like a super nuke that can destroy the Earth and destroy the whole atmosphere. So it has to be controlled. Uh, they have to recover the plans because the, like the, the plans were only in one copy on this microfilm. Again, very, very convenient for the story. Makes no sense from what we know. Like right now, like everything would be backed up in... in Triplicate. No, there's no way a spy could steal one, the only copy of a, of a plans. Uh, you'd have to like destroy whole 
supercomputer database. You don't destroy a whole building, I think, to, to actually do this. And even then, it's probably on the cloud in some way, right? Um, but uh, our hero, um, Joe Gilead, figures out that it only Kettlebelly Baldwin could have had the, the microfilms. And so he's kind of figured this out. And then he, now he's basically being fired by, from FBS for his bad job. So he punches out the boss, paralyzes him with some, with a shot and then escapes. Um, again, kind of cliche spy stuff where like you have to turn on your own agency to really solve the mystery or whatever. But eventually we get to the reuniting of Baldwin and our hero, uh, Gilead. And first the Baldwin's point is, oh, you're in big trouble. Um, like we'll give you a chance to retire. We'll get, we'll set you up for life. You can have a nice life on an island somewhere and, you know, not worry about anything. You'll have, you'll be set for life. And this is sort of another test. The first test was to, could he pick up the card game? The second test, I think, is is he going to be committed to the greater goals of humanity, or or will he just like go for what's simple and easy? And he says, "No, I need to see this through to the end." And Bolton reminds him that he's unemployed and he's just like a criminal at this point. And he says, "No, no, I'm gonna I gotta go through with it and see it and find where the plans are and and all this." And it turns out Baldwin does have the plans, and they are, and he he just returns them to them so they're able to be destroyed and that plot line seemingly is closed up as we'll see it, it comes back in the last pages of the story but that essentially is a self-contained story that's not too too bad again a lot of espionage fiction cliches and a lot of like eye-rolling moments that you're going to have here but the whole baldwin character is kind of fascinating and you know the role he plays his loyalties are a bit unclear at this point in the story, but it, it works. It kind of is like a nice little mystery. It's not completely uh, completely resolved, but the threat of the Nova effect is resolved. So I'm actually happy with the first half of the story. The second half of the story, though, is basically Baldwin recruiting Gilead into his into his Superman cult. <laughs> And there's a lot of conversation here, a lot of exposition about, you know, how they're always men who are like more advanced in some way. And then, well, he kind of he's got a logic here. And the logic is like, what makes man different than animals? And it's like intelligence. It's the ability to think. So supermen must be able to think at an even higher level because all these other superpowers that one can acquire are rep can be replicated by technology or just even done by animals. Like if you're super fast, well, great. You're just a cheetah, right? Cheetahs can run really fast too. Uh, if you can fly, super nice, but you're not better than an animal um, in that sense because lots of animals can fly. There's actually some thoughtful stuff here on the Superman stuff uh, and on how we think about superpowers. Uh, you know, it's something to consider because we often do when we give people superpowers, they're often things that do exist in nature among animals. They just are things humans don't possess. So are they really super? They're just part of our na nature. What's different, what's special is man's ability to think. So um, he says the Superman isn't going to just be able to have these 
these other random super abilities, they must be super thinker, a super thinker so who can transcend human, hum, the normal human's ability to think. Now, there's a little bit more here where he asks, like, well, what about psi powers? And he's like, yeah, we use those that are useful. You'll be trained in psi powers. But even psi powers are not, are really just conveniences. For instance, if I have teak, I can move things. Well, so can a truck can move things, right? Um, if I have, uh, like, if I can read someone's mind sonically, well, there's hypnosis. There's other ways of getting at that same thing. Uh, new man, and that's the term that starts getting dropped around here. So the Superman is like the new men uh, will be characterized by their ability to, to unlock the potential of the mind. So kind of an interesting conversation, but it just devolves into the you're only using 10% of your brain cliche. And it's like, well, here's how to unlock the other 90% of your brain through training. Uh, now, there's a lot here also about a language, uh, which... You almost want to call Newspeak, but it's not. It's uh, it's called Speed Talk. And the way Newspeak, the logic of Newspeak is it's supposed to be a language where it's impossible to be ideologically inconsistent with the goals of the party. Uh, if Speed Talk, the idea is to have a language where it's impossible to be irrational, right? A super scientific language that's, that's very flexible and can be learned, but its efficiency uh, not only allows for people to communicate at a faster rate, but to communicate without error. That, so basically, it's impossible to make mistakes when using this language. Uh, so it's almost difficult to be illogical. It's, if you understand the language, it's easy to be illogical. And he's being so, so he's like, okay, whatever, I have nothing to lose, and there's 40 pages left in the story or whatever, so I will be trained to be a new man. So he accepts his membership into the group, and he starts being trained by this woman named Gail. Um, now, there is uh, some more exposition by Gail about especially the speed talk stuff, but also about, like, do new men, are they transgressive in every way? Do they transgress human relationships and human customs and traditions? And there's a, actually a fairly interesting conversation here, which borders a little bit on, on eugenics, but uh, it's not the worst thing in this story. The whole thing is kind of gross, but uh, the marriage thing is kind of fun because he. Now I didn't realize at the time that they're setting up the final finale of the story, but here it is. Um, Out. I had the impression that the new men didn't bother with marriage and such like, as you put it, monkey customs. And Gail responds, "Some do, some don't. Me, I've been married quite a piece, but I mind a mousy little member of our lodge who's had nine kids and nine fathers, all wonderful genius plus kids. On the other hand, I can point out." One with 11 kids, Thalia Wagner, who has never so much looked at as another man. Geniuses make their own rules in such manner, Joe. They always have. And here are some established statistical facts about geniuses shown by Armoto's work. Geniuses are usually long-lived. They're not modest, not honestly so. They have infinite capacity for taking pains. They're emotional ally indifferent to accepted codes of morals. They make their own rules, end quote. So this is like the Nietzschean Superman, right? Um, where it's what defines the Superman for, for, for Nietzsche is, is their ability to transcend the, the ethical, right? The ethical codes they've been given within the institutional boundaries that they've been born with. So that's nice, but we're, they're not all so transgressive. Some are traditional marriage, some are non-monogamous, some make their own rules, whatever that means. 
Um, all this is setting up the marriage proposal between Gail and and Gilead, which happens at the very end of the story. So anyways, he's well on his way to um, learn and speed talk. There's some really funny stuff here. It's actually pretty laughable uh, the way speed talk is talked about. I, I literally wrote haha on the margin of the story sometimes because it's just so ridiculous. It's it's super lame. Uh, but he, they try to train him in Psy as well, Psy abilities, and he doesn't really have that capacity, so they just give up on that. Again, it sounds like that's a practical thing for the new man. It's like, if, they, if you can develop the skill, great. We'll develop it in you. If we can't, we're not going to waste time to make a, a shitty telepath, right? We, we're going to focus on our efforts that people will be good telepaths. All right, anyways, in the climax of the story, in the last 10 pages, actually it's more like the last six or seven pages, we learn that, and that's out of a 70-page story, uh, we learn that the Nova effect has survived, that there must have been another copy uh, on the moon, and so they have to go to the moon. It's Gale and Joe are going to have to go to the moon. Uh, and there's a whole plan worked out where they're going to like work for um, Kithley, infiltrate the institution uh, to get the Nova effect and destroy it because she's got it all set up with a dead man switch and, uh, um, you know, threatening Earth and all that. And she's got dreams of like ruling over the post-apocalyptic humanity. She's just a normal supervillain. Her motives are really weird, aren't explained. What, what use is a doomsday weapon that will destroy everyone on Earth? From the moon's perspective, maybe. Um, but even in the moon is a harsh mistress and never threatened to destroy all of Earth, right? Just lob asteroids down to them. But anyways, they, they infiltrate. This is all done very quickly in the story. They, they infiltrate the, the home and sabotage the... The Nova effect, the super weapon, is, is once and for all destroyed. But they end up having to, um, they end up dying in the in the effect. They both have to sacrifice themselves for the missions. Both Gale and Joe. We also get a nice little bit at the end where Joe finally is able to like perfect his ESP and his psi ability, so he's able to talk with Gale through their minds at the end. And through that, they they basically marry themselves. And it's a very Superman thing to do, to not defer to uh, the, the customs of, of the human customs and the traditions, and they just decide to marry themselves. And that's it. And then the thing blows up, and he's sacrificed. And the story abruptly ends with the letters on the metal marker read, to the memory of Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Green, who near this spot died for all their fellow men. Uh, I don't know how they knew they were married, since they married through their psi abilities. And they both died. But whatever, who cares? Golf. That's the story of golf. Uh, there's not much you're going to get out of the story that I didn't kind of speed wrap out to you just now. Um, it is same old kind of uh, ubermensch, fascist kind of adjacent, uh, eugenics stuff that we we've come to know and it's not Heinlein at his best it's not a particularly well-written spy story too many cliches too many just laugh out loud moments throughout the story we've seen Heinlein do better uh even when he wrote this kind of pulp stuff 
So him returning to the pulp genre and astounding, I guess, is fine. It's, I'm sure readers were getting all excited when they heard that, oh, the new astounding is going to have a Heinlein story. But uh, this, I don't know if this underwhelmed them or at the time or they just dug this because they're all into this, these weird ideas. Um, I think, I don't know. I don't know what I expect from an astounding story at this point, but it's it's what we got, and it's a little sad because I, I think Kindline had re- has really been like developing as his own voice after World War II, um, and we're back to something we've seen back in the '40s: overly long, convoluted, pasted together stories that, and their thematic heart, have this new man Superman idea in them. So I don't know. I don't have too much more to say about golf. Oh, the title. The title, of course, is referenced directly in the story in that the golf is referring to the golf between Superman and normal man. Right. So even in the title, it's it's about dividing up humanity from between those who are more superior, homo superior and homo sapien. That's what is built into the title. Um, I didn't know that when I picked up the story. I thought. What could this be? Who knows what those mean? But once it's revealed, it's pretty clear what that. Oh, that, that's the golf we're talking about. A pity I, I wasted my time reading this, this story. So, yeah, I'm going to be kind of hard on this one because Heinlein just deserves it. It's really, you, you really wrestle with this guy and you're like, yeah, that's a good idea. That's really fascinating. I mean, coming off of Red Planet, which is so good and so such an embrace of democracy and collective action and both from the Martians point of view and from the colonists point of view and the struggle against the, the, the very new men, the people who claim to be the new men, the, the, the robber barons of the future get overthrown by the common will of the people. That's, that's a wonderful story, right? And then to really revert back to this stuff where it's it's actually a cabal of secret agents, you know, turning the dials and assassinating the right people at the right time, doing their their work to to keep balance and, and keep the, the homo sapiens from, you know, keeping the homo sapiens from being too smart for their own good, right? There's even a whole anti-democracy rant here where... Uh, you know, where Baldwin, I think it is, just says, like, democracy is all well and good, but people are basically stupid, so they need us. So here we are. And anyways, that's what you're going to get in this story if you, if you pick it up. So anyways, in the next episode, uh, we will talk about Nothing Ever Happens on the Moon, which was published in Boy's Life. So this is a Boy Scout story, uh, April and May 1949. Um, and much better story. So I'm looking forward to talking about that next. So anyways, thanks for listening. Check out golf if you really want to, but it's nothing new. And what's what's maybe unique in here, the card game, maybe. But again, there's better cipher stories out there. It's just, it's just not worth the time, I think. So, but let me know what you think. Maybe you have a better opinion of golf. Um, but I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.